Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warshaw Professor of Politics at the University of Southern California and the Director of the Center for the Political Future at USD Dornsife. Welcome to the next installment of our Election R&D Dialogues, which I host with our co-director at the Center, the legendary Republican strategist Mike Murphy. One of the most impactful endeavors at the Center is our Fellows Program, which brings leaders from the real world of politics to campus to teach a course and interact with our students in a whole range of ways. Our fellows have ranged from Simone Sanders, who's now at the Biden campaign, where she's a consistent spokesman for the former vice president, to Adam Nagurney of the New York Times, to Mike Madrid, a spectacular GOP consultant in California. This semester, we have an outstanding cohort of fellows, former Senator Barbara Boxer, former California Treasurer John Chung, and former U.S. Representative Mimi Walters, who's our guest today. Mike and I will ask questions for about 35, 40 minutes, and then we'll turn this over to questions from you, which you should submit using the comment bar in the Zoom. As you can tell, I'm not the world's greatest expert at Zoom, but we'll get through it. To kick the discussion off, let me turn to my adversary in politics, my colleague at the center, and my personal friend, Mike Murphy. Well, Bob, thank you very much. Uh, One of my friends, or at least alleged friends, just tweeted me, legendary. Legendary windbag is more like it. So it is is good to be here. Welcome, viewers. We have an actual legend here, our guest. And I get to do the biography, which is a really impressive political biography. And we're so excited to have her as a fellow and as a guest today. We have Mimi Walters, who represented California's fighting 45th district in the Congress from 2014 to 2018. She, before that, was a California state senator, so we can call her congresswoman, senator, or assembly person. She was in the California State Assembly, and before that, local politics, the toughest arena of all is a local mayor. The only blemish on an otherwise just a spectacular record is she is a UCLA graduate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're bending our rules here, classing up the place a little with the Bruin, and before that, in the world of investment banking, before she took the demotion to politics. So thank you very much, Mimi, for joining us uh, here today. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with the first question, which is I'm always fascinated, you know, about the sort of people who wind up and have the guts to put their name on the ballot, run for Congress, run for local office. I find there's often a great origin story of how they did it. So let me ask that question to you. What led you into public service, I guess, when you first ran for the city council or mayor? And then Congress, however you want to answer it. Well, um, it really started when I was in high school. I was new to a school. I was a, a sophomore, and I didn't really have any friends. And so I got involved in student government. And it was really just to meet people. And um, I decided that I enjoyed it so much that I was going to run for junior class president at the end of my sophomore year. And the good news for me is I ran unopposed, so I won. And then I decided, well, gosh, that was really great. So at the end of my junior year, I thought, you know what? I'm going to run for senior class president. And at this point, I was running against a really popular guy. So I thought there was no way I was going to win. 
but I was also dating the basketball star. So that kind of helped a little bit, I think, in me getting some votes. So I ended up winning and became senior class president. And then I decided when I got accepted to UCLA that I had heard about this program where you could intern on Capitol Hill. And I really wanted to intern. So I applied for the program my freshman year. And in the fall of my sophomore year at UCLA, I interned for a congressman named Bill Thomas from Bakersfield. And as we all know, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, had took his spot. And it was really that experience that led me to want to run for Congress someday. I thought it would be really cool to go back to D.C. and be involved in the political process. And I knew that obviously I had to get an education and graduate from college. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family. I obviously needed to have a job. And as I sort of, you know, checked the boxes, uh, came an opportunity for me in my uh, city of Laguna Niguel where I was raised. And I decided, what the heck? I have three kids, I'm pregnant with my fourth. I might as well go run for city council. And I did it. I lost, but um, I had a, had a really great opportunity and um, eventually got appointed to the city council and just started from there. Wow. So you then went to the state capitol and later to Congress. How are they different? How's the, is serving in a state legislature different than eventually going to the federal level? Well, yeah, you're dealing with state issues, and there's difference, obviously, between the state issues and federal and the federal issues. But you are really primarily dealing with, you know, what's happening with the state. And I think when you get to Congress and serving in Congress, it was like my whole world opened up and dealing with so many large, large issues, not only domestic issues, but foreign issues as well. And it was just a fabulous experience. I think we met back, I was working for Arnold after 2003. And you're kind of a star in the legislature, but I what issues were you first interested in in Sacramento when you got there as a freshman? And the other question, how many women were in the Republican House Assembly Caucus back then? I remember oh, a couple, gosh. but not a lot, right? Yeah, there weren't a lot. And I think I was the only, when I was in the Senate, I was the only Republican woman right. from California in the Senate. But one of the biggest issues that I was very passionate about when I served in the state legislature was um, dealing with the pension crisis that our state faces. You know, we have at the time it was about a half a trillion uh, dollars in unfunded pension liability. And it was actually under Governor Brown that we were working towards um, making some reforms. And unfortunately, the reforms didn't go far enough. We did make some tweaks here and there, but that is one of the issues that I continue to be very concerned about for the future of of our state. Yeah, it's one of those tough issues where it seems abstract to people until the pension checks are, you know, in Exactly. Why didn't you do anything? Well, why didn't anybody care about this 10 years ago when the warning buzzers were going off? Yeah, it's hard to get people excited about an issue like pension reform because it's, you know, it's not sexy. It's not exciting and it's hard to get people to pay attention to it. So that's a big challenge we have. Isn't it a classic case of an issue that is not urgent at the moment? So it's easy for people to put it off and to say, we're going to fund all these other things and let somebody else take care of this 10 years down the road. And how do you overcome that? It's difficult. I mean, until you have, like we were facing the financial crisis back then when I was, back when I was in the state legislature and people were starting to pay attention because we had this huge 
deficit and, you know, financially our whole country was in turmoil. So people started to pay attention then, but, you know, now is a different time and um, they're just not that interested in, in my opinion. There's a famous Bob Dole story that I actually heard Bob Dole tell back in the 90s, which was when he was, you know, Senate leader and a big, huge job in D.C., walk down the hall, 30 people follow him around. But Dole would always joke around that when he was talked into running for Congress as a young veteran back in Russell, Kansas, he got there and he was extremely intimidated as a young House member because he looked around and thought, I'm just some hayseed from Kansas. I can't believe it as he looked at the oil paintings and the statues and everything in that ornate capital. And then two weeks later, he started thinking, how did all these clowns get here? <laughs> so <laughs> what, what was it like as a freshman member of Congress? Because, you know, people only see Congress through the, the lens of kind of fiction where they're limousines and earphones. And, you know, they, they don't really know what it's like to be a House member with a small staff, one of several hundred. Maybe, you know, any memories of that when you showed up? I mean, you were, you were, you're a political pro by then, having been a California state senator, which in many ways you represent often more people than, a, than a member of Congress. You know, it's a bigger thing. But still, the Congress, the House in particular is a special animal. And I'm curious if you might want to talk about that a little bit for folks who don't kind of know what it's really like in that world. Yeah. Your days go so quickly. And I remember after I lost my race, I had lunch with former um, Congressman Chris Cox. And he, I said, Chris, what's it like when you're not in office anymore? And he says, your life is going to slow down and you're going to actually be able to enjoy it. I mean, I spent four years in DC and I cannot believe how quickly that time went. From the moment you get up in the morning, you're at meetings, at breakfast meetings, you go to your office and you know you have more meetings or you have he committee hearings and then you have a lunch and and it just meeting after meeting, you're meeting with constituents. It's, you know, you, there's not enough hours in the day. You walk a lot. <laughs> you have to, because when you go to vote, you walk from your office. And I mean, I used to walk like 15,000 steps in a day. So now that I've gotten back home, I've had to be sure I'm exercising a lot so I don't gain weight. But in your meeting, amazing people. It's incredible how many people you meet. And it's obviously, you can't remember everybody's name. But it's a fantastic, it was a fantastic opportunity. It's funny. I had some uh, friends from kind of outside politics. And th these were that's one center, one left Democrat not long ago. And I arranged for them to have, you remember Doug High probably, a great old staffer, worked for Eric Canner. Mm -hmm. Kind of take them around a little bit as part of a project I'm working on. And they got in an elevator with like, I won't name names, but two fiercely partisan cable TV Democrats and two fiercely partisan Republicans, including Jim Jordan. And <laughs> they were all backslapping and, hey, you see the cafeteria's got a better soft serve ice cream machine now. They couldn't believe it. That kind of behind the scenes of it, it's not a fist fight in the hallways and everything. Right. They call right. The house. Did you have some yeah. good Democratic friends and everything? You probably voted. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would talk to my Democrat friends all the time. And it's one thing when you're discussing policy and you may have differences on policy, that's your job. 
But it's another thing when, you know, you're not discussing policy and you are just asking about their family, how they're, you know, they're doing and you develop those relationships. And I have a lot of relationships, especially on the Democrat side with my California uh, colleagues, because number one, I spent a time in the state legislature with many of them and they went on to Congress. And so I have a lot of relationships and a lot of respect for them. But it's true. It's, you know, you have to do your business, but then you can be friends um, afterwards. Can you talk about what? Why, given that the polarization in our politics and when people think of the Congress, I think the first word that comes to mind is can't get anything done, fiercely divided. Why is that that way now as contrasted with a decade or two ago? I think the rhetoric has gotten worse, and I think that plays into it. There's a fight, always a fight to who's going to have control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, because remember, Whoever's in control, it's their agenda that they're promoting and moving forward. And I think that with social media now, people write things and they'll say things and they'll tweet things that they can hide behind. And so I think the rhetoric has just taken up another level and that's adding to the polarization. When I first started doing politics longer ago than I want to remember, there were Democratic members of the Congress who would buck a Democratic president. There were Republican members of the Congress and the Senate who would buck a Republican president. That all seems to be a thing of the past now. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, I mean, we still have a little bit of it. I I witnessed a little bit of it when I was back there, but it's changed and, and, and not for the better, in my opinion. And is there any way that that could be changed? I mean, is it just a matter of fear that members of Congress and senators are fearful of bucking a president of their own party? Yeah, because their fear, their, their fear is being primaried. I mean, remember what happened when the Tea Party came in on the Republican side? They were taking on more moderate members. You see it now on the Democrat side where you have more of the moderate members are being taken on by the left. And so they're very concerned about, you know, being primaried and losing their seat to somebody in their own party. And uh, I, think, I think that's the reason, one of the reasons anyway. Yeah, I've never worked for any candidate incumbent. You know, when you have the political meeting, the big topic is how do we lose our primary? Right. And the other thing is like, how do we survive our <laughs> primary? I mean, we might have a headline next week and, the, you know, the, there's a lot of Democratic excitement about the race against Mitch McConnell, which is a tough one in Connecticut. But McGrath, the candidate, former Air Force officer, she's very impressive. 19 million, I think, cash on hand two weeks ago from all her fundraising support. She may well lose the primary next week. I think it's even money. I actually would, if, if Bob gives me odds, put 20 bucks on uh, the progressive challenger, a state representative named Brooks, uh, to beat her. Because the energy, it, it is hard for a centerist to get through the modern primary. The other thing is redistricting and gerrymandering has narrowed the number of competitive districts. There used to be about 90 members of Congress between the most liberal Republican and most conservative Democrat. And now it's down to like eight. Uh, And I I make this point because you're an interesting study in all this. The 45 congressional district, people hear Orange County and they think, you know, oh my goodness, rock rib Republican, John Wayne statues everywhere. That's not the story anymore. When you were elected in your first congressional race in 2014, before that, Barack Obama had carried that district against John McCain. And then Mitt Romney carried it back. It's a classic swing district. Trump lost it by, I think, five points or so. So you were part of that group of Republicans who who came from districts that were not lockstep. 
you know, where you had real politics back home. And that probably made it a little more complicated when the leadership is very much aligned to guys who are in an incredibly safe district and, you know, don't are happy to go to the hardcore. That must right. be a challenge. Yeah. And it was since in my district, since Trump had lost, I had to really walk sort of that fine line during the whole campaign where I obviously very much supported his policies and I had to be careful about being too tied to him because I knew that the district didn't like him. And that, you know, was obviously played into one of the reasons I lost. I mean, I I would also say that this ballot harvesting issue is a very big deal. The Democrats put about, I want to say about $20 million just in my race. I think there was about 60 million that went in all of Orange County. And on election day, I was ahead by over 6,000 votes. A week or two later, I'm down and I lose by 12,500 votes. That's an 18,500 vote swing. That's almost unheard of. And that's because on election day, the Democrats, God bless them. I mean, they did a phenomenal job, but they dumped several hundred thousand of ballots, several hundred thousand ballots that they had harvest and held on to at the registrar voters. And once I had heard that number, I thought I knew I, I knew I, I was going to lose. Yeah. I mean, look, your, your district, the Trump numbers there, and I, I think, you know, he could be looking at a 10 point loss. I mean, if the election were held today in that district, just because the districts changed and he, you know, I'm one of these raving anti-Trump Republicans. But, you know, we've lost nine governor seats. You you don't lose a lot unless you got top of ticket problems. And your district and others are at the cutting edge of those numbers. So when when you look at this election now, what's your take on 2020? What do you think is going to happen? You get to be an observer now, not a participant. I know, I know. Yeah, it's um, actually nice. And I don't have to go out and raise a whole bunch of money either. So that's been nice as well. I think it's going to be very close. It's going to be tough, I think, for Republicans to hold the House. I think we will be able to keep the Senate. And I actually think Trump will probably be reelected, but it's going to be close. It's going to be very close. What do you make of all of the polling that we're seeing now showing the president being hurt by the unique combination of circumstances we're in. We're living in 1918, 1929, and 1968, all at the same time. Yeah. And his job rating is going down. Yeah. And he is a victim of those circumstances, as all presidents would be in this situation. But November's a long time away. And, you know, it's a lifetime in politics. I think if we get out of this pandemic, which hopefully we will soon, I, I think the economy will, ba- will, you know, will bounce back. It may take a while, but we had phenomenal economic growth over the last few years. And I was part of that tax reform package. And I know it wasn't very popular in California, but when we had that tax reform package kick in, we saw you know, unemployment go to its lowest in 50 years. We had more people making money. that they had ever made. And it had a huge benefit on the economy. And things were great until this happened. So, you know, we'll see what happens. uh, But hopefully we'll get out of this pandemic soon. If you were uh, Joe Biden, if you were advising him, the phone rang and it was Joe, probably unlikely, but, you know, we're playing the (laughs) the hypothetical here. But let's just say, (laughs) let's just say, and he asked you who to pick his running mate. What what advice would you give? I I think there's some very high quality Democrat women on their side. I mean, somebody like a Susan Rice, I have a lot of respect for her. Um, Kamala Harris would be, you know, obviously a a force to be content with. I would be careful not to go to somebody who's too liberal 
um, like uh, an Elizabeth Warren. I think she would not fare well for him. But I think he has, he's got a lot of people that he can, he can choose from. Yeah, I think somebody a little too ideological would not play very well in the California 45s of the world. Biden's got to decide about making the base happy or holding the suburbs. And uh, your district is the classic kind of thing they ought to be thinking about. You were a mayor, which means you actually ran a police budget some years back. Uh, yeah. We're, we're in a moment now where the social contract, at least in the cities, between police authorities and the population is fractured. You know, after the, the brutality, and even I'll, I'll use a word I don't like to throw around, but it's obvious in the Minnesota case and mm -hmm. increasing in Atlanta, murders. How would you be thinking about police reform as somebody who's been in all levels of government right now, knowing we're at a moment where the country is really demanding it, and yet you also need effective policing, and you got to find a way to change a culture, and in at least some police departments, it's been proven to be a real problem. What, what, what's your take now? Because in many ways, that's the issue the country in kind of a really special moment right now is really focused on. I think we have to look at reform with the unions. I think the union, police unions have got to come to the table on this because the, they protect their, their, their members. And I think the unions have to wake up and realize we have to have reform and they've got to be, have a seat at the table and allow reform to happen. What, what's been going on is it's heartbreaking. Um, and I do believe that people have the right to protest. I believe that they should be able to protest in, in a safe manner. But what we're seeing with the looting and with the destroying of property is just not acceptable. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say, listen, we want to defend the police, but then we want the police to protect us. That's ludicrous. Uh, we have to get police reform because, um, listen, there are bad actors. We all know they're bad actors. Uh, so we need to change procedures. We need the police to be engaged in the communities. And the police need to be respected. And the police also have to respect the residents. So I think we will probably come to an agreement at some point. I know the Senate is, Senator Scott has proposed a bill in the Senate that I believe is going to be uh, voted on very soon. But again, a lot of it goes back to, as you said, uh, Mike, to uh, the locals and the, the, the local leaders. They have to be involved in this process as well to make sure we get the real reforms. You know, in Congress, it's interesting. Uh, the way it used to work all the time was the House would pass its version of a bill. The Senate would pass its version of a bill. They'd go to conference committee and they'd knock out the differences. Mm -hmm. Somehow or other, they'd come to an agreement. Do you think that can happen given that you have a Democratic bill in the House that will certainly pass there and a Republican bill in the Senate that will certainly pass there? And they have some very different provisions about police reform. Yeah, um well, we'll see if there's a will of the leadership on both sides to see if that happens. But that's right. The conference committee is, is when I was in Congress, that's exactly how we uh, passed legislation. And when we couldn't agree, we went to conference committee. It, we'll see if there's a will from the leadership's perspective, if they can make uh, some sort of agreement. I don't know, because they seem to be at opposite ends and not agreeing on a lot of things these days. I'm going to ask you the series of questions. It's actually one question, but that reflect all of, of your background, uh, local, state, and federal. How do you think, how would you rate the performance during this pandemic of Mayor Garcetti, of uh, Governor Newsom, and of President Trump in the Congress? One of my concerns about the leadership is, and I, I, I will go, I'll start with Governor Newsom. 
when this whole pandemic first started, he did a press conference and he said 25.5 million people in the state of California could get COVID in the next eight weeks. I think that was irresponsible for him to say that because I think it put a lot of fear in people's minds as to what was happening. I know the president has gotten criticized for not starting soon enough. And I know that uh, Mayor Garcetti has kept LA on lockdown way too long. I know a lot of people are upset about that. What I will say as a leader in the positions they are all in, you are in a tough spot. I mean, you have to, your number one job is you got to protect people. And with the data coming out and people not really knowing how serious it is or how unserious it is, you have to put yourself in a situation where what do I think is the best course of action? And perhaps all three of them thought they were doing what they should be doing. I personally thought it was a little too much. People have to have their freedoms. And One of the things that has me very concerned is what are the ramifications of shutting down the economy for three months and counting and keeping people holed up in their house? And what kind of unintended consequences are we going to have when it comes to suicides have gone up, mental health issues have increased? We have to think about that as it relates to what this pandemic has created. I look at the state of California. 157,000 cases in California and 5,000 people have died from from COVID-19 and we've completely shut down California. I don't think that that was something we should have done. I mean, it's easy, I guess, to look back and say hindsight's 2020, but I think we went too far. Bob, did you have a follow-up? No, that's all right. Listen, we're not here to debate. We're here to hear from Mimi Walters. So I'm not going to debate her about this. I I think that it is true that we have now lost more people than we've lost in all the wars that this country has waged since World War II. So I think it's a pretty serious problem. And Anthony Fauci today is now saying probably can't have football this fall, which will be another aspect of shutting down. Right. And that that we can't even talk about a second wave because we're not through the first wave yet. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing huge spikes in places like Florida and Oklahoma and, and Georgia, places that seem to be okay. Yeah, but I think ago. there's also more testing out there, too. That, I think, has to be factor, factored into it as well. A lot more testing. So we're getting more cases. We're seeing that. Well, there are also antiviral drugs coming along and cocktails that are showing finally some effectiveness, which might help bend the mortality curve. Yeah. One thing I worry about a little, and I don't have an answer to this, but I can do arithmetic. We're spending now with the stimulus in real dollars, damn close to what the government spent to win the Second World War in equivalent dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus. Now, you can't let the economy run dry, seize up and trigger a massive depression. So there's got to be a a middle ground somewhere on just how much stimulus we can afford at, at a time already of huge deficits. You know, one of my zillion criticisms of Donald Trump is he's, in my view, no fiscal conservative. So we're going to have another fight for another trillion plus of stimulus. Is there a point where we ought to say no? I mean, you're you're a documented fiscal conservative like I am. What's your take and how would you be looking at this, this if you still served in the Congress? Would you be a yes or no vote on another large stimulus package? Well, I think we have to first spend the money 
that we've put in the first stimulus package, which we haven't spent yet. The other thing I have a little bit of a concern with is I've been talking to people, um, you know, where I live and um, some of the small businesses have told me that they can't get people back to work because they're making more money on unemployment than they were uh, when they were working. And that's really having an effect on the small businesses. So we have to take a look at that because they're getting money from the federal government. They're getting money from the state government. It would be better if we could have it more coordinated. But there's a lot of people just enjoying themselves because they're getting all this money on unemployment. So we have to take a look at that. But I would first, let's spend this money. Because I agree with you, Mike. I'm very worried about our deficit in the state of California. I mean, in the, in the country. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. And who's going to pay for it? Well, here it's the classic. We talked about the pensions, right? Well, we'll let somebody else worry about it. You know, we'll be all dead by the time they have to fa- deal with it. So um, um, I, I think we have to, to, you know, look at what we're spending and, and, and have oversight and see how effective we've been on it so far. Yeah, and it's a compounding problem because government revenues go down in a recession and government spending right. goes up. And I'm all for stimulus, and I'm, I'm not necessarily at all against the initial steps of this, but there's got to be a big view because otherwise we're going to have this just massive explosion in federal debt, and then policymakers are going to start looking at inflating their way out of it. And then the, you know, the life pressure of inflation could reach. Anyway, there are big macroeconomic issues coming, and uh, that's got to be part of the part of the equation. Now. Let me pivot a little to career advice because we're almost ready for questions here. You have done a lot. You helped found the California Women's Leadership Association, which has started programs and initiatives to help train women to run for office. And as of 2018, we see a record number of women running and getting elected, yet there are still plenty of gaps. What are the barriers you think women face and what advice would you give to maybe one of our young uh, young participants here? who might be considering actually running for office, you know, as a woman, uh, your own experience and the work you've done with that institute or that association? When I ran, um, I didn't have a lot of women mentors who were in office. And I think one of the biggest barriers is, um, number one, you have to raise a lot of money if you want to run for office. And if you're afraid to get on the phone and ask for money, then don't do it. Also, when I ran, a lot of my friends had stayed home with their kids. They had worked, then they had a family, and they were staying home. And so they lost that network of people to go to for support when it came time to raise the money or just other other means of support. So they were outside sort of that business world. And I think another difficult thing is for a woman is if you want to have a family. Now, I, you know, I have four kids and I did it, but I couldn't have done it if my husband wasn't super supportive of me, of me running for office and we worked together as a team. But I'll be honest, I would come home on the weekends and my job was making sure I did the grocery shopping, making sure I had the help, you know, lined up to help when I was gone, making sure the house was clean. I mean, I pretty much did all the domestic stuff in our house. So uh, I didn't have a lot of free time and I was fine with that because my passion was public service and I enjoyed it and I was grateful for the opportunity. But those are just a few um, reasons I think more women haven't run in the past. I'm so glad to see that a lot more are running now. I think they're getting more confident that they can do it, seeing that other women have done it. Excellent. Bob, anything else before we, we go to some of these questions that are piling up here? No, I guess I should say that if you go to our website, Center for the Political Future, USC Dornsife. You can look at the future election R&D dialogues that we're going to have. Mike, I think we can go to Q&As. 
All right, cool. We have an interesting question here. This is from Adam Jackman, who is currently interning with Congressman Lee Zeldin oh. in New York's 1st Congressional District, which is close to my heart because as a young punk Georgetown kid, that's where I did my first congressional race out there for Bill Carney, who we got reelected in the fishtail out there. Anyway, so in the New York 1st, the very end there of Long Island, the so-called fishtail, I... He writes, Adam writes, I've been getting calls from many constituents of the district that claim they are receiving absentee ballots for their deceased relatives. Are we sure this is in Chicago? And right now, there is no barrier to these ballots being sent in and possibly counting. What kind of reform could be instituted for this issue to be solved by November to make sure we have legit elections? And I'll add, as a fan of uh, vote by mail, which we've done successfully for years here in California, if that spreads, you know, what, what can Congress do to, to in a time of COVID where, you know, in-person voting might be hard, make it work and make it work fairly and avoid those kind of errors that Adam claims he's getting there in the Zeldin office? Yeah. First of all, Lee Zeldin was my class. Lee is a great guy, so I'm sure he's enjoying himself um, interning for him. We've experienced that in California as well. You may remember the Judicial Watch actually sued L.A. County because they were sending ballots to residents that weren't, were not still alive. And, that, and they won that lawsuit. And so now what L.A. County has to do is they have to purge their rolls. They have to clean up their, their voting rolls. And they have to clean up the voting rolls and they have to give the results to Judicial Watch. So it's not as if they go straight to the Secretary of State. That something like that, unfortunately, the states control if they're going to do all mail ballots and the secretaries of state um, have control over that as well as their, their counties. So it's a matter of purging those rules and forcing the states to do it. And that will help take care of that issue. I don't know from a congressional standpoint if there's anything that can be done because it's really, I believe, a state issue. Right, right. You might be able to tie funding to some standard of, you know, annual purging or something yeah at least whatever they get from the feds but you're right it's the heart it's local and as we all know politics is local that's right we have another question here oh this is from anonymous this might be good Uh oh seems to me there are roughly two parts of the republican coalition right now the more trump-leaning america first group which i think would encompass people like joss holly and on the other hand the small government pro-business republicans what are your thoughts on how the dynamics between these two wings of the GOP coalition will play out if, you know, President Trump is defeated and it's kind of a new Republican world after 2020 or even if he gets a second term after 2024? Yeah, it's a great question. How, how do we think the party will vote? Because it's sure different than it was pre-Trump, I think, in many ways. Yeah, well, in our conference, um, we always had the Freedom Caucus and then like everybody else. And the Freedom Caucus was always the far right people. And they actually had considerable power in our conference uh, when I was there. And several of them now have gone on to work in the Trump administration. Some of the leaders have gone on, like Mark Meadows has gone on, Mick Mulvaney, has, they've gone on to work in the Trump uh, administration. So I don't know how much power that they currently have right now. And that's one of the, the toughest parts, I think, for Kevin McCarthy is how to navigate keeping everybody together on important votes, because as a leader, you want your conference to stick together. And I think it's harder when you're in the majority, by the way, it's harder to keep people together because when you're in the minority, you, it's like you want to stay together more. So if we take back down, if we take the house back, 
I think it's going to be, if we take back the House and President Trump wins, I think you'll see more chaos on the Republican side. If we lose the House and if President Trump loses, I think you will see people come together more. Yeah, nothing like losing a lot of power and standing in the rubble to kind of have a reset of how you think. Right. And, you know, we've had four years where we lost the House, lost it again. And if we lose the Senate, which I think is not certain, but possible, right. and the White House, it'll be quite a time of reckoning. And, mm-hmm. you know, we either double down on the populism or we go back to trying some more traditional stuff. All right, another, then Anonymous is working hard here. Another Anonymous. <laughs> Come on, Anonymous, use your name. We, we won't yell at you. This is a good question. What is the roadmap for Republicans in California? What are ways they can be more competitive in statewide races? Because it, it ain't what it used to be. We have pockets, but statewide, we're like the Democrats in Utah these days. You know, yeah. entertaining, but not that important. What do you think the path back could be, Mimi? That's that's a really good question. I've, of, I've often asked myself that question, and I don't know what the answer is, except for I think that if there's some major crisis in California, the pendulum will swing back. I mean, look back when, when we recalled Gray Davis and Governor Schwarzenegger became governor. It's sort of like it, everything shifted back. So you have a state now that has supermajority in the Assembly, supermajority in the Senate, have all constitutional offices and a Democrat governor. They control everything. If we continue to tax people, make it more difficult for people to live here, People leave. Our budget shortfall is $54 billion now because of pandemic. I mean, things are going to have to line up. And then all of a sudden, you'll have this crisis moment. And that's when I think there will be some opportunities that open up. Because you can change. You could say Republicans should be more moderate or more conservative. I mean, I don't think that. I just think you have to be practical and you have to seize the opportunity when it arises. Yeah, my view is you need an opportunity conservatism. I mean, I grew up in Detroit and sometimes... I look at the party in states that are demographically at the leading edge of change in America, and we're like the Chevy dealer. When the guy walks in, our salesman's first line is, I want to throw your parents out of the country. We're not selling a lot of Chevys. You know, the, the California is going to be the first state to be majority minority. Mm-hmm. And if we can't compete outside right. the old white dudes like me, you know, we're, we're mathematically doomed, and then we got runaway socialism. So I know the Dems are over <laughs> it, but the question is... <laughs> I know the Dems over. The question is, are we going to be there to be a viability or are we just going to organize the gated community and be all ticked off? Right. Uh, oh, here's a Noam Chomsky uh, quote. Bob, I think I know your alias here. This is legitimately from Kimberly Bliss, who writes, Noam Chomsky talks about the responsibility of intellectuals, but how can politicians do the right thing if corporations control them? What can we fight to get change that can make the biggest impact and what are the chances we can alter this problem? Well, maybe I'd be interested in your answer, but you might talk a little bit because this is where regular folks don't quite understand how fundraising works, yeah. how every member of Congress hates it, how it's not a matter of control so much as, you know, access to make an argument. I mean, regardless of R versus D, how does money actually work every day in politics if you're elected and somebody says you got to raise two million bucks to get reelected? Yeah. Uh, so. Anyway, however you want to answer it, but I think that's an interesting area. I would say, first of all, politics is a huge industry. People like make a lot of money off of politics, and uh, and it is very expensive to run. 
the good news is, I think, is there are limits that a candidate can take from corporations or from unions. Uh, the unions play a very big part in this whole, uh, in, in the political process. And it can be very difficult. You spend a lot of your time raising the money. And even though, I mean, I would take money from everybody because I don't want to discriminate. I'm like, you give me your money. I'm not going to discriminate. I'll take everybody's money. But that never influenced my vote. Now, some people it might, some people wouldn't. But if you're, somebody's going to give me $2,800, okay, big deal. I mean, it's, I'm grateful, but it's not like, okay, I'm going to go vote for whatever you want. I always try to vote my philosophy and what I believed in and what the voters had elected me to do. But money will always be in politics. And, and the one thing that I get concerned about is if we start to go down this path of having taxpayers pay for people running for office, number one, that's very expensive for the taxpayers to pay. And number two, you can never deny somebody who has their own money to give themselves and fund their own campaigns. So I think we have to make more of a level playing field for people who aren't really wealthy and can't afford to fund their own campaigns and then let people who don't have that money raise the money so that they can compete. But it, it's just, it's sort of a necessary evil in the game and it's never going to go away. Well, the Supreme Court says money is speech, which is an unpopular opinion, but I think an intellectually honest one. You know, what's funny is few people know that how politicians have to work so hard because of the $2,800 contribution limit to constantly be raising money. And, and uh, I have found most of the time People don't give because they want to call you up and tell you how to vote on the paint bill. Right. They, they give because they figured out they're on your side of most things and they want team red to beat team blue, mm -hmm. but they like having the personal interaction, the three minutes by the ice sculpture, you know, with the candidate to right. be kind of part of it. You know, it's funny. Romney used to just kill me with the story when he was running for president. I said, you know, how is it dealing with, you know, selling out to the big corporations? I would mock him about it, you know, as an old friend. And he'd say, yeah, people have no idea. I go to two or three breakfast events a day running for right. president. And people come up to me and say, you know, we're all behind you. But, hey, Mitt, Mitt I got to tell you this. You're kind of stiff. You ought to work on that. He goes, like, <laughs> 26 times a day, like I'd never heard it before. But, you know, I have to sit there, oh, good point. It's not be so stiff. Somebody write that down. Yeah. And so just the grind of it is when I talk to Pauls, I've been at this 30 years. That's the thing they, they kind of find the hardest. Not that people call up and say, I gave you 2,800, so vote for this space needle, but just kind of the thousands of people that kind of are tugging at you. When yeah, and I, when, when I was in Congress, I not only had to raise money for myself, but right. I also was really involved in the NRCC. And um, I had to help raise money for the NRCC and so it's, I mean, I literally, I was on the phone constantly and you can't do your phone calls in the Capitol because right. that's taxpayer location. So you have to go off site right. to do your calls. And so trying to, we, we went to the Capitol Hill club, uh, not the Capitol Hill club, but the right next to it. And we would make our calls at the RCC office. Right. And then, you know, we'd, you know, have 15, 20 minutes, go make some calls, go back to committee hearing or whatever. Right. We would try to squeeze it in whenever we could. And for a lot of members, it's like a dental appointment because people think you're there for a big <laughs> cigar and a couple of billionaires uh, and a chocolate fountain. What You're going to the basement of the RNC, which is like, you know, Sears in the 70s, bad everything. You're in a cubicle, a bunch of other members around. 
and you're dialing for dollars like Glenn Gary, Glenn Loss with the staff are handing you cards. Right. And you know, you're you're dying for the clock to click so you can get back to a hearing. And they're like, here, one more. And then, you know, it, anyway, it, it is much more of a grind than people think. But without money in our current system, unless TV stations and, uh, and newspapers are going to give real free space for speech, you know, you got expensive consultants like Shrum you got to pay for. <laughs> Mike, since you mentioned me, there is, and you, men- you mentioned a reform that folks like Bob Squire and some of the people who pioneered political consulting thought would be the biggest single way to change this. Now, it'll never pass the Congress, but if for general election candidates, the television stations had to give a certain amount of rating points, certain amount of free time as a condition of holding their license, you would actually reduce the costs of campaigns substantially, and you would reduce the pressure on people like Meanie Walters to go spend time in those cubicles calling and calling and calling and calling. Yeah, I've always been for that. The problem is the internet's stepping on it now because the yeah. traditional broadcast like saying what it used to be. That's right. Oh, another great question. This is from Clara Carrasco, who asks, do you think it will be possible to introduce a third party in the future? That's a good question. And I know um, people have tried. The problem I see with trying to introduce a new party is that you would think it would be more of a moderate party. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm somewhere in between. But both Republicans and Democrats, their base are passionate about what they believe in. And it's hard to find somebody that's willing to give up everything and and go to meetings and fight for everything who's not super passionate about an issue. So if you're sort of in the middle, then you're like, yeah, I like it. No, I don't. I'm not going to give up my life to go fight for these things. And that's why I think it's going to be difficult to have a third party form or a third party that would ever be really successful because they're not so gung-ho on one side or the other. The system is kind of Coke Pepsi too. You know, it's built to distribute two candidates. But I think once this little gadget here really takes over and we have blockchain voting on your phone, then the systemic distribution problems start to go away and you might get a third party. The problem with third parties, and I, I, I've worked around the world. I've worked in places where they have 18 parties, and 20% is like you're in front. But then your coalition thing, and somebody doesn't get the right lunch at the party meeting, they break off and form a party. Right. And <laughs> did an election in El Salvador, where, excuse me, in Panama, where the beer brands each had a party, and they were doing pretty well, fifth and sixth. You know, so the multi-party thing is kind of a interesting dream. But the fact that we force people to pick one side and give somebody a majority to govern with is pretty good. They do it well in Canada with three parties. But when I worked for the Canadian Conservatives a lot, we were always like, woohoo, 43 percent. And we got the country Yeah, easier. Than 50, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I think it uh, it could be either way. Now, this is a question from Kay Porter. In or no, uh, Paul Kovic, do you think you're ever run for public office again? Uh, I never say never. I'm 58 years old. As my husband said, hey, you were lucky you lost at 56 and not 66 because you still got another career ahead of you. But I'm enjoying my life right now. I've got um, my husband started a business a few years ago and um, I've joined him and we're really starting to take off. So I've gone back into the private sector, which after 22 years in the public sector, it's I'm learning. But I've been able to actually use some of my network to help our company. So that's been a real positive. 
And I sit on the board of B. Riley Financial, my first board position. And my background was in the investment business. And so I'm just, they're a great group of guys and I'm having a, a wonderful time with them. And of course, I get to come to USC. Don't tell my, my Bruin friends and I get to, uh, <laughs> I, I get to uh, be a fellow. So I'm really enjoying my life right now and my new adventures. And um, I'm very excited for the future. But we'll see if there's an opportunity down the road if, you know, I'll seize on it. I say run. Just let us uh, make a few changes here to the old party. Now, a question from Rachel Maltz. How do you think campaigning will change in the future, either due to COVID or due to factions that have been created on the right and left and the fact we have so much kind of, as Bill Gray used to say, I'm right, you're evil dynamic in politics now. What do you think future campaigns will look like? How will they be different? I think they're going to be more and more on social media. I think social media has changed campaigning dramatically. And you may see less in-person campaigning and everything's going over the internet now. I mean, you're fundraising, you, you have to you micro-target on the internet. It's just a whole different way of campaigning that we've seen morphed over the last several years. And I think it'll continue as technology continues to improve. But there's something to be said about that one-on-one -on -one contact with people that you can't ever lose that because you have to be able to connect with people. So I think that will always be a part of it as well. The studies all show that human-to-human -human contact is often the most persuasive, yeah. which is tricky. Mike, can I uh, go back to something we talked about earlier and asked about something that just flashed across the top of my screen? Okay. Which is Governor Newsom has just issued an executive order requiring all Californians to wear masks in public. How do you feel about that? Do you think it will work? And why is there so much resistance to the evidence that comes from Fauci, CDC, lots of other places, that mask wearing is actually the single biggest way to stop the pandemic? Well, I think that he's going to have a very difficult time enforcing wearing masks. I mean, if I'm out on the street by myself walking, why should I have a mask? No one's around me. And um, I think you're going to have a problem with local control. Some of the counties are just not going to listen to what he says. And I mean, I look at our sheriff here in Orange County, you know, he's not going to spend his resources going after people and what, putting them in jail, ticketing them because they're not wearing a mask. I, I just disagree with it. I think uh, I don't see that if I'm outside by myself, I'm hurting anybody. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because Italy, which was an epicenter of all of this and now has almost no cases, they enforced it not by putting people in jail, but by having fines like 200 euros, 300 euros, if you weren't doing what you were supposed to do. I think it'd be very hard to enforce that here. But I also think what he's trying to do is stop the spike that we're seeing in cases in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my, I, it's a tricky one because if you have any brains at all, you wear a mask. You know, so the question is, does the nanny state have to enforce right. it? I think maybe a sticker on your forehead, I'm an idiot, you have to wear for jail. <laughs> you don't wear one. You have to wear that to jail. Maybe it'll catch on. And, you know, it, it biologically is pretty proven and it's not that hard a thing to do. Now, double question. First, another anonymous one. Mike Murphy and Bob Shrum, you are terrific, especially together. Why is an election R&D a major network Television series. Well, <laughs> thanks, Mom. But look, faces made for radio. Okay? 
I know, unbelievable. Would be ratings gold. <laughs> now, the serious question, but thank you for those kind words, Anonymous. Question from Devin Patel. This is a great question. As an undergraduate student looking to eventually run for elected office Ooh. starting in city council, oh, how good. do you build a coalition? Mimi, great question. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, when I decided to run for city council, I got very involved in my community, and I actually got my start working on the holiday parade. And I, I worked on the holiday parade, got to know people who were in the community. I then uh, got appointed to the investment or the banking committee. We had just gone through a bankruptcy in Orange County in 1994, and they had formed a banking committee. And so I got appointed to that. And I just volunteered in my community. And I also volunteered at the, with the Republican Party because we were heavily Republican city. And I wanted to get to know people who worked on campaigns so I could learn how to run. And it was really through that process that I started to build my network of people and my network of support. I know a lot of people who started in politics with a shoebox full of business cards, mm -hmm. you know, from being out and around. You just, yeah. it's exactly how it's done. So any final words? Erica, who's our master puppet master here, has reminded me through messaging that we're down to our last three minutes. So I've got some wrap-up stuff. But before that, uh, Mimi, Bob, any final words? No, I just want to say uh, thank you, Mimi, for agreeing to be a fellow. We're really proud to have you, and we look forward to seeing you in the fall. Well, thank you. I'm very excited, and I'm really looking forward to talking with the students. And I've got some great ideas of people to have as special guests and um, I have lots of fun stories to tell. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to, to participate. Great. Thank you. Well, we're lucky to have you in the long-suffering college conservatives are going to be very happy to uh, <laughs> uh, have, have a good Republican. We have one almost every uh, semester and you're, you're a superstar. So it's going to be great. All right. So if you want to keep track, you audience people, of what we're up to at the Center for the Political Future. There are lots of ways to do it. First of all, you can support us because we do it on a tiny budget. And we have something called the Center for Political Futures Center Leadership Circles. Now, your donations fund scholarships, events, student loans. We actually sent a dozen kids out to Iowa to work on the caucus to learn how to break into politics. It's a life-changing thing for kids. And all of that comes from the funds that we get from great donors like you. So if you're interested in supporting us from $5 to $5 million, we'd love to talk. <laughs> you, can, you can contact us there. We have a website, of course, and we have a Twitter feed, Center for the Political Future. Our Twitter feed is at USCPOL Center. Thank you for joining this Zoom conversation. We do a lot of these, track the website. And again, I want to thank Bob Schrum, my co-pilot here, and Mimi Walters, our upcoming fellow and distinguished Republican public servant. See you next time. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 